Hey friends, welcome back to the Love Intently podcast. I'm Sophie Kwok, your host and the founder of Love Intently, where our mission is to empower thriving relationships. Real quick before we jump into this week's episode, have you checked out our love personality quiz yet? Every person gives and understands love differently. And the love personality quiz is a great tool that identifies the different ways that you love along with your communication style and other parts of what makes you unique. It's a great tool to start the conversation with your partner and you'll betcha. If you're single, this is something you'd want to know too, as it helps you communicate these things when you do enter a relationship. This week, we have the incredible Dr. Marcy Gleason. She is an associate professor of human development in the family sciences at the University of Texas. And she's been in the field for over a decade and she shares her insights and learnings with us today. I'm personally fascinated with the data and psychology behind the science and art of relationships. And she breaks down her work around social support and what is actually helpful versus hurtful. Her work is fascinating and I can't wait to share this week's episode with you because research shows that having social support is critical in your health and wellness but what is actually helpful and hurtful? We have a fascinating conversation today. And so without further ado, here is our conversation. Uh, My name is Marcy Gleason. I have a PhD in social psychology from New York University in New York City. I am a professor at UT Austin. And I teach a course called Family Relationships, which is about everything from attraction to bereavement and focuses on our intimate relationships across our life course. And I study social support in uh, intimate relationships, so social support in marriage or committed relationships, and focus right now on the transition to parenthood. So I would love to hear about what got you into the field. I am an odd case because I decided I wanted to be a psychologist who studies everyday people, not abnormal, not people who are suffering from illness, but people who are healthy and just living their normal lives. I decided I wanted to study those people when I was 16, and I didn't want to be a therapist. I didn't want to work with people to make their lives better. I wanted to do research that I hoped would make people's lives better. And I went to Penn State and got my undergraduate degree in psychology. And there I discovered social psychology, which is the study of our social relationships, but writ large. So uh, social psychology often really focuses on attitudes, prejudice, stereotyping, group behavior, as well as relationships. But there's a lot of different areas of social psychology, goals, motivation, a bunch of different topics. Uh, And I discovered like that's exactly what I was looking for. I graduated from there, went straight to graduate school and then did a couple of postdocs and then got this job at the Human Development and Family Sciences Department at UT Austin. Uh, So I don't know how that's possible that at 16, I decided I wanted this very um, odd job where I would get to just study everyday people and teach about them. But somehow I did. I never heard of it. I didn't really know if it existed. um, And I just got lucky that it did and that I was able to do it. What was it that fascinated you at 16 about people and wanting to study the everyday people versus, you know, what other psychologists more traditionally study? Yeah. So 
there were two things, and they're quite different. I think that drew me to this. Friendship and relationships were really important to me. And at the same time, I was pretty shy and a little socially anxious. And so understanding that world, like, you know, having sort of an idea of, of if I could more understand why, how friendships are. And, stuff. and I had very good friends, but I was very curious about how social relationships worked and things like that, like how groups formed and broke up. But I think the bigger thing for me was that growing up, I became very interested in the history of World War II and particularly the Holocaust and was, I think, as all of us are troubled and baffled about how people could commit such atrocities against other people. The people committing these atrocities weren't monsters before they were in this situation, or some of them weren't even committing them and maybe weren't comfortable with them, but weren't doing anything about it, you know, and sort of what makes some people go along with just horrible, mm. inhumane, you know, just horrible behaviors. And then other people resist and, and, and fight that. And, and so understanding how I wanted to understand how we can do that to each other as humans, because my life, the people in my life have been so warm and loving towards me. And as I said, I did have good friends and I actually had wonderful parents. And it just seemed crazy to me that that, that could happen, that people could develop this hatred towards people that would result in this type of horrific behavior. And so I wanted to understand that because I didn't see that as coming out of a place of these people are sick and there's something wrong with them, but rather they were normal people who got turned into monsters. Mm. And other people in those same circumstances were turned into heroes. And what makes one person turn into a monster and another into a hero? What have you discovered through your research? Well, I wouldn't say that that's what my research is about at all. So that's what drew me to the field and made me right. want to study this, was just sort of understanding what, what people can do to each other and how and why they do it. And I thought that I would go to graduate school, study prejudice and stereotyping and, and that kind of group behavior. Those are the people I applied to work with largely in graduate school. It just so happened that while I was at my undergraduate institution, Penn State, the social psychology program there, when I was doing my undergraduate research, the people who were available to work with were studying close relationships. And I got involved in their labs. There were people there who were studying stereotyping and prejudice. They just actually were like on sabbatical or on maternity leave or something like this. And so I got involved in these relationship labs. And I really loved that. It, it, it fed into my other interest in friendship and intimate relationships. But I really thought I was going to go study this other thing. And uh, I went to grad school and I picked a grad school at NYU where I could study both things, that both kinds of research were taking place. But it just turned out that my research ideas and my acumen in research really leaned towards intimate relationships. And so rather than studying how people in groups can behave horribly or well to people, I study how people in couples can behave horribly or nicely to each other uh, in typically much less extreme ways because I'm not studying violence in relationships. I'm studying... I study everyday relationships in which people have care for and love each other, but perhaps don't always show that in the best possible way. And what my research has led me to discover is just how hard it can be to support somebody effectively and to demonstrate that what you mean to be caring is caring and not undermining or negative or judging 
and how hard it can be to convey those supportive messages effectively rather than actually sort of exacerbate whatever they need support for or or make them question your motives. Okay, share a bit more about that. Like what were your findings in when and how is support given well and well received and and your findings around couples and how how to better love each other in the way we intend to? All right. So I have some, I mean, obviously I do work in support and so I can talk about what I have literally myself found, but I think it'll be more useful if I talk about the support literature more broadly. Yeah. Where, what, what sort of as a field we have generally found. And one of the big findings that was hard to understand in the support research was that if, if we look at whether people think they have support available to them, whether they think of their partner as being supportive, whether they think of themselves as having this broad social network that's there to give them help when they need it. You know, so anything from if you have a problem, is there somebody you can talk to about it to if you need a ride to the airport, is there somebody who will take you to the airport? Right. Um, the more you endorse that, yes, my partner will do that. Other people in my life will do that. We see incredible benefits for that. And I mean, to summarize, we literally see that people who report having integrated social networks have a lower mortality risk. They are less likely to die at any given time in their life than people who have less social integration. And that effect is larger. The effect size for having a good social support network on mortality risk is larger than the, than the difference between being lean and obese. And if we look across studies, what the data actually suggests is that being socially supported is going to be more protective for your health than being lean is going to be protective for your health. Now, as I tell my students, I do not recommend that people who are well-supported say, well, no problem, then I will just be, I will let myself go. <laughs> you know, like that's clearly not the best idea. But the fact is, is that as a society, we really focus on our physical health and being in shape and exercising. And that's, really great. And we have public campaigns to promote that and, and a lot of attention paid to it. But in the support research area, what we're finding is, hey, maybe we should be paying attention and, and sending people messages about how important it is to make a social network for ourselves, to be connected, to, to have close friendships and close relationships. Um, and that that will be as beneficial or more for people's health. Now, you take that finding, that's great. Okay, support's great. End of story, everybody go get support. But then we wanted to look at, you know, then the, the fields returned to the idea of like, okay, well, how does support work in a given interaction? How do people react to support? And this kind of thing. And what started to happen is if we look at when people actually receive support and we, and people have looked at this in the laboratory, they look at it in what I use, which is called a daily diary, which is like, I ask you every day, like what you did for your partner that day, what your partner did and other things about your day. Or they bring people into the lab and ask them to support each other and videotape it. We see that the effects of actual instances of social support are often not terribly effective. They're not making people feel better. They're actually oftentimes increasing their anxiety and negative mood. And that's really curious, right? Because we have this overall thing that you would think that like, the more I get instances of support in my life, the more I would perceive that I'm going to get support. And we know that perceiving that I'm going to get support is so good for me so what's happening when I get a, a, an instance of support and, and it's not only not helping me, it is actually often exacerbating my negative feelings mm -hmm. towards the event. 
So to give you an example of when that's occurred in a lab setting, which is where we can really tease apart these effects, Niall Bolger, who is one of my advisors at NYU, mm-hmm. conducted a series of experiments in which he had research assistants, and they're called confederates in our studies. Um, they're in on the study. They're working with the experimenter, but the people who are participating in the study, the subjects of the study, don't know that they're in the research team. And so they brought in a naive subject, somebody who didn't know, who just thought, oh, I'm participating in a psychology study. And they brought in this confederate who is somebody who the subject thinks is just participating in this experiment just like they are, but is actually like essentially an actor, right? Like they have a part to play and they're going to play that part. So the participant um, is told that they're going to have to give a speech and they're going to practice it with this other participant, this other supposed participant. And that's very stressful. It turns out people hate public speaking in all forms, right? And so to all of a sudden have sprung on you that you're going to give like a five-minute speech about something is actually anxiety-provoking. Even if it's not a terribly public forum, we don't want to do it. The Confederate, at the end of the speech, would either offer them support and by saying like something like, you're going to be fine, like you're doing a good job, I've heard to give a good speech, you do this and that, or didn't say anything at all or gave that information, they're going to be fine. I've heard to give a good speech, you do this and that, but says it to the experimenter. So not to the person who gave the speech, but to the experimenter. And what they found is that when that person directly supported the person who just given the speech, the person who gave the speech reported more anxiety about giving that speech than they did when the person said nothing at all and significantly more than when the person gave that same information, but to the experimenter. And so what we think that support messages might be doing is undermining people's confidence in their ability, even though what they're supposed to be doing is shoring people up, right? But by the person saying to that person, oh, you're going to be fine. I've heard you give a good speech. You do this and that. They're reading that rather than, oh, you did this and that. You're doing a good job and you're going to really be fine. They're reading it as this person's nicely trying to tell me that I'm not doing this right, right? But when the person tells it to the experimenter, somehow or another, they're more able to believe that that person really thinks they're doing a good job, right? So exactly the same words, but directed towards them or towards the experimenter. And it's a totally different experience for the person hearing that information. And Niall called, termed it invisible support because the person, after all of this, they would be asked, like, did you receive support from your Um, experiment partner. And when they were directly told, you know, you're going to be fine, they said, yes, got support. But when they weren't, when it was told to the experimenter, they said, no, I didn't get support. The person didn't support me. To make it more complicated, and one of the reasons that relationships are, I think, really difficult to navigate is in the condition in which they got support, which when it was said directly and they felt more anxious, they liked the Confederate more. Okay. So Yes, what the Confederate said to them made them more anxious, but they liked them more than when the Confederate didn't say anything or said it to the experimenter, right? So it's like, you're making me more anxious, but I like you because you're trying to help me as opposed to like, oh, you've actually calmed me down, but like, you're not trying to help me. So I don't particularly like you, right? Like I don't like, I mean, they don't dislike them, right? But it doesn't help them. Like it's not making them feel more friendly towards them. And that's just, I think, particularly because it's experimental, we can really isolate what's going on in that situation. And we can see how support messages, there's so much going on in them 
And we experience them on many different levels. And so they can be really complicated. And so other support researchers have found that support is more effective when it matches what the person is looking for. So unfortunately, we're much more inclined to give advice than any other kind of um, support. But people don't really like getting advice. Oftentimes, people think that this is gendered and that men like getting advice and women don't. We don't find evidence for that. Neither gender seems to enjoy getting advice, uh, but both seem to enjoy giving it. So you can imagine how often the support we're giving perhaps doesn't match the support that the recipient wants. In my research, I find that all negative effects of receiving support, so sort of the increased anxiety um, and perhaps an increased feeling that they're not able to handle the situation, go away if they both receive support and provide support. So if there's a reciprocity of support. So I find that in couples um, and in individuals on days when they say that we had an exchange of support, that they are the least anxious, they feel the closest in their relationship, they feel in control of their situation. Um, and in fact, I mean, there's other relationships there that I won't go in, other associations, I should say, that I won't go into with that. So I find that Another way to make support more effective is to not have it be unidirectional, but have it go both ways. So if I'm talking to you about something that's going on in my life and you're offering me support, it could be really helpful if then after we're talking about that, you ask me for help about something that's going on in your life mm. or something like this, right? That the, the idea that, that it, it is more beneficial to have support that's an exchange or reciprocal, and it doesn't have to be exact, right? Like it doesn't, we don't have any evidence that you have to give exactly the same amount or do it in the same way or even do it at exactly the same time. But it's this idea of in our relationship, I'm not the only one who needs help. You think that I'm capable of helping you, which means that you value me and you value my capabilities. And so any sort of feeling of worry or incapability, I'm, I, I feel from having to go to somebody for help is somewhat diminished by also have, is not only diminished, but it seems like it enhances the entire situation and it becomes the best type of situation. Yeah. That's super fascinating because that's something I've personally had to work on a lot myself is learning how to ask people for help as well. And there's a whole TED talk on like the art of asking and and why and how that is actually giving other people an opportunity to support you and how much life that gives to them as well. Um, because we idolize self-sufficiency and we think, oh, if I'm a burden, if I ask for help or I can't do that. Whereas like everything you're saying right now is actually in that acting exchange, it builds your relationship. Yeah. And it turns out we love giving support, right? So you really are when you ask people for help, like as long as you're not overburdening them, like right. with everything in life, there are limitations, right? right. And there is plenty of evidence in our literature for caregiver fatigue. So people who are in relationships or caring for somebody who's very sick and who needs a lot of support, right? And who isn't participating in the support process, they're only receiving. And the caregivers get burned out. And that's an entire, it's a very difficult situation. But if you're in a relatively normal situation, we find that giving, like when people report that they're giving support to their partner, they often are happier on days when they've given support, regardless of whether they received, right? Like they're reporting less negative mood on days when they only give. Um, there's this fascinating study that was done with a 
an MRI where they were looking at brain activity as people, as uh, women held their partner's hand when their partner was being shocked or when their partner wasn't being shocked. And there were other conditions, but just to, to make it as simple as, like to make it as clear as possible, the women's pleasure centers lit up when their partner was being shocked and they were holding his hand. <laughs> um, and they didn't do that. There was also a condition where they weren't holding his hand and he was being shocked and a condition where he wasn't being shocked and they were holding his hand, right? So you would think like, oh, maybe holding hands makes your pleasure center light up, right? Not as much as when you're holding his hand and he's being shocked. Now, when he's being shocked and you're not holding his hand, that's not good, right? But what this is suggesting is that they feel good that they're helping their partner through these shocks, right? Like, so it's it's the act of of giving that like, that, that uh, comfort to somebody who's in distress that was particularly pleasurable for the people. Not that they're like, you know, enjoying the fact that their partner is being mildly hurt. <laughs> right. You mentioned earlier that you have been doing some studies on major life transitions, particularly in early parenthood. What are some findings there in through your work and other work that you've read about um, and also studied alongside? Well, unfortunately, Oftentimes, well, this is so true of so many things that we find. So the happiest you are in a relationship is typically your wedding day. And then we generally find declines in marital satisfaction after that. That's on average. It's not true for every couple at all. But on average, most couples decline in marital satisfaction across the course of their marriage. And if you want to accelerate that for a couple of years, have a baby. <laughs> okay. So what we find is... That if you look at couples who don't have a baby, they have this average decline, but couples who have a baby have that decline. And then after the baby, they have a sharper decline for, for at least a little while. So what we find is that the transition to parenthood is um, uh, disruptive to people's satisfaction in their relationships. And that's been found many, many times. And again, there's variability. It's not true for everyone. And it appears that this eventually balances out and, and it's not as though people with kids are, are so much unhappier than people without kids. But it's a real challenge and it's a stressor and it changes relationships. And so that's one of the, the largest findings. It's one of the reasons I wanted to study it because what's going on in these relationships that when they have a child, all of a sudden, at least some of them are having pretty dramatic decreases in satisfaction and overall you're seeing some sort of stumbling. And I thought, well, maybe their support exchanges are breaking down. Maybe the way that support, their reacting support changes, reacting to support changes. And interestingly, I haven't found that. I find that support exchanges are important before, immediately after, and even a year after birth that we still find the same sort of pattern of the benefit of support exchanges. However, there is a little bit of indication that particularly in infancy, there is less exchange of support, right? So it's still beneficial, but it might be occurring a little bit less. In addition, what, we've, what I found in my own data is that we have measures of whether how you're feeling and how your partner's feeling, and we seem less able to track how our partners are feeling when we have very young babies at home as compared to before we have the babies and when the baby's a toddler, right? So there's something that it seems like the baby is perhaps interfering with, right? Like you've had this strong, close relationship, this uh, marriage between two people or relationship between two people, and you've been able to focus on each other. And it's been that relationship, you know, once you established your, your coupledom, you've been a couple. Well, now you're a threesome, right? At least, unless you're twins or 
quadruplets or something, but most people are moving from being a two to a three. And essentially you can think of it as like somebody else just joined your relationship, right? We think of it as like, no, 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 it's still just me and my partner, right? But actually there's a third person in your relationship. And now you're a little bit of a love triangle rather than um, a dyad. And so I don't find evidence that the baby is interfering with people's closeness to each other as long as they are both feeling close to the baby. So what I find is that when mothers and partner and their partners both report that they feel close to the baby, that closeness in the relationship also remains high between the mother and her partner. But when one of the partners, when either one of them says they don't feel as close to the baby, the mother or the partner, that that diminishes relationship closeness. And so what it seems to be what my data seems to be suggesting is that the couples who transition through parenthood most successfully are those who are both bonding strongly with the baby rather than one parent sort of bonding with the baby or, and the other one, not so much, or neither parent particularly bonding with the baby, right? That rather than thinking of the baby as interference, they are actually a source of which if you have this mutual bonding with the baby where you're both feeling that way, that it can be really protective or maybe even enhancing. Hmm. So it, so it's interesting, right, about how that would work because I think there was some indication in other research labs that one of the reasons that marriages might become less close and less satisfying is because the mothers develop this bond with the baby and then kind of block out the partner, right? You know, they, they kind of, they're focused on that relationship and that that is isolating to the partner. And it's possible that that is true. But what we find is that being bonded to the baby normally will enhance your relationship with your partner, but particularly if the partner also feels close to the child. So those are a few of the findings that I have. So it seems like people are sort of having this disconnect across that transition, but a lot of the things that they do in their relationship work in the same way. They might have less time to engage in them, but one of the ways that they can protect themselves from those changes with the addition of a baby is to really focus on both of them bonding with the baby and not leading that to one person or the other. Right. Are there any things that you found are more helpful to, to do that or like things that you would suggest couples to kind of look into for both partners to bond with a baby? I haven't found any evidence yet in my data that I can say like my data is showing this. Uh, if we look at the Scandinavian countries that require paternity leave, right? So I think one of them now actually like requires paternity leave and having fathers have to be in charge of the child for a while, have to spend that time seems to help with that kind of process, right? Because a lot of times, particularly in the United States where we have no guaranteed even maternity leave, um, if any parent stays home with the child, it's typically the mother. And that automat that that sort of institutes right in the beginning the possibility of the mother being more bonded or more connected to the child, right? And again, I don't have evidence of that for my data, but when you look at these countries in which the father is more likely to spend time at home, there is some indication that that there's less division in sort of what people know, right? So mm-hmm. um, if you you talk to American mothers, they might say like, oh you know, when I go out for a couple hours, I have to explain to my husband or my partner all the things that they need to do, where the bottles are, where the food is, just so that they can go out with their friends for a couple hours. Whereas the partner 
doesn't seem to be reporting that they need to like to debrief the mom before they go out. Right. Like they don't need to be like, okay, so here's where the, you know, like, you know, they don't have to do the same kind of thing. So having a situation in which both parents know all the things that are involved in caring for the child could be beneficial, I think. But again, I don't have that in my data yet. And I don't think my, I don't think my data have the capability of showing that because we just don't have enough family leave generally, let alone family leave for both partners in the United States and in Texas. Yeah. Uh, And then other things that I think could be protective. This is actually for older kids. And this is something that I'm starting to look into, but I, I did a survey of parents who have slightly older kids and I asked them how many sort of fun activities they've done with their children lately how many of those fun activities involve their partner and the children's other parent? And how many fun activities they've done with just their partner? So essentially saying like, how many date nights have you had in the last two weeks? How many like fun things that you don't, did you do with your kids in the last two weeks? And how many fun things did you do with your kids and your partner in the last two weeks, right? And there's a lot of advice out there to go out on date nights with your partner and to make sure you reconnect after having a child. And I think that's great advice and people should do that. In the literature, in the research, we know that couples who engage in more fun and novel new activities report more passion for each other, report being greater, uh, experiencing greater feelings of love. So this, that's great. Go out on date nights. But I was curious, what happens when you, now that you're not just a dyad and you're a family of, of greater number, does doing fun activities all together make a difference for the marital relationship? Not just like a parenting relationship or a family relationship, but for but for the partnership, the, the marital relationship. And this is just survey data. Uh, and I'm looking to explore, I, I'm looking to do more experimental research because right now it's an association. I, I can't say what's causing it. But when I look at that and I predict how satisfied they are in their romantic relationship based on how many fun activities they do with their kids, how many fun activities they do with their kid and their partner, and how many activities they do with just their partner. If I look at date nights, they predict greater marital satisfaction, but they no longer predict greater marital satisfaction if I add into my models fun activities with child and partner. What predicts it most strongly and independently is how many times in the last two weeks they've done fun, exciting activities as a family rather than just as a couple or just as a parent-child diet. And that's not to say that doing things just as a couple or as a parent-child diet aren't beneficial. They do seem beneficial for parenting, for for well-being and marital satisfaction, but it's interesting that there seems to be something maybe a little bit unique in families about doing family activities, about doing things together as a family. And particularly, you know, if growing up, um, you know, did your parents try to make a point of like eating dinner with you? Because there's all this research that suggests that kids who eat dinner with their parents, people who eat dinner as a family, like the kids are less likely to do drugs and have sex and these things. And, and there is evidence of this. I mean, really it's about that family, like it's not so much dinner as it is, Hey, do you get together as a family, as a family and talk, you know, like whoever lives in your household to get together and like, and connect with each other or see each other. And this is sort of suggested like, Hey, that's not just good for the kids outcomes, right? This is good for the parents' outcomes, like that families are groups, right? They're groups of people. However it is that we define who our family is, who lives in our household that makes up our family, we're groups. And so it doesn't just benefit kids to have those nice group interactions, those fun group interactions, but it actually benefits the parents, not just in the relationship to the kids, but in their relationship to each other. So those are some of the things. 
Yeah. That's really, really, really fascinating to think about that the data suggests that that the family events might not be as great for the couple themselves and how important that one-on-one time is. Yeah. And I think that, as I said, with caregiving, there's a probably a balance, right? Like there's a balance. Like if you go too far to any of these sides, but to not construe the idea that what is good for the couple has to just like, if, if you want to help the relationship, you really just have to focus on the relationship. I think that it's important to do so, but there are other things that we can do that are going to enhance our relationship. And one of the reasons I started looking at this was because of this research about how doing fun, exciting activities with our partners made us feel more in love with them, made us, you know, enhance our relationships. And that's, it's great. Like, you know, if you're uh, going on a vacation with your partner uh, and you've never ziplined, I recommend ziplining. Like do something new and fun with your partner whenever you can. That's great. But a colleague of mine, Dr. Tim Loving and I were talking about the fact that we we had children at almost the same time, he and his wife and, and my husband and I, and, uh, and how much joy our kids brought us, but particularly how much, and I mean, also how frustrating and exhausting and and maddening parenthood could also be. We, we talked about both, right? Because we do not, I do not find parenting super easy or, right. or all joy all the time at all. But at the same time, like this morning, my kids went out to, went to school, dressed up in their Halloween costumes. And like, you know, it, and my husband and I are taking their picture and it's just this moment of like, oh my goodness, we both love these adorable little people so much. And we think that they're so cute. And my, my son came home with a really good report card a, uh, a week ago, as did my daughter. And like my husband and I got to, like, we were so proud of him together, right? And so my colleague and I were talking about how one of the great things about having kids is with your partner is that your partner is like the only other person that's just as happy and proud about this event as you are. And that's such a unique thing that you get to celebrate with a partner. And that, that, that we thought that must be beneficial for relationships, right? Like that has to be something that parenthood, rather than detracting because you're tired and you don't have as much time for each other, um, libidos go down, this kind of thing, you know. But isn't it amazing that when something great happens, you know, my friends, I can tell them like, oh, you know, Simon had a really great report card. And they might be like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Congratulations. They're very nice about it. I have great friends. Right. But like my husband and I are like on the same page. Like I know that he knows that's a really special good thing for us. And I will say actually both of our kids, grandparents, both his parents and my parents also are as in love with our kids as we are. And so there are other people that we get to sort of do this same kind of sharing with and have that enhancement from. Um, but that's where this research sort of came from is this idea that like, look, yes, kids disrupt marital functioning because they take a lot of time. They change a lot of things about a person. They change the way people are living their lives. Like there's a lot of change associated with it. And we don't always know how we're going to be after we have kids as as compared to who we were before we had kids, right? You might be somebody who liked to go out all the time and your partner and you went out all the time and now you don't want to and your partner still does and finding those balances are, is hard, right? At the same time, you've brought something into the world that you both really love and enjoy and using 
that love and enjoyment for the same person to enhance your relationship seems to happen naturally in a lot of cases. And so is there a way, and this is something that the more that I look at this effect and I'm, I need to look at it more. I have this one study that suggests it, but if I find more evidence of it, then trying to look at how I might be able to help people create those moments in their family that will not only enhance their parenting relationship, but also their marital relationship. How did you and your husband meet and how long have you guys been together? Okay. So I am 42 and he and I met when we were 18. Oh my gosh. We met on our first day of classes, freshman year at Penn State in English class, and we became friends. And then when we were 20, we started dating. And then when we were 22, we broke up because we both had career plans and things we wanted to do. And we didn't want to we did not think we were going to meet the person we were going to marry in college, right? It's like you meet the people you're going to date and then later in life you settle down. So we broke up and we went, James and husband moved to uh, Michigan and I moved to New York City to go to graduate school, but the breakup just never took. We never really broke up. And so eventually uh, he moved out to New York and then we got married after grad school. Um, and so we've been married 14 years about now. So we've been together 22 and been married for 14. Yeah. Have there been any major shifts in the way that you show up in your relationship because of the work that you do? I actually think it just makes me more annoying. So um, <laughs> like, you know, I know about how you're supposed to behave in a conflict. And so, you know, if my husband and I are arguing and one of us engages in like one of the argument tactics that is, isn't good, I will have a tendency to be like, well, it's not okay for us to be doing this or that. And then like, rather than like dealing with what it is we disagree about, I can make it shift to the way we're disagreeing about it, which isn't particularly helpful in resolving those disputes. And I think probably really annoying. In other ways, maybe it's, it's helpful. I certainly think that the more you learn about other people and think about other people, the more empathy you can have for anyone, right? Like the more I spend a lot of time trying to get into other people's heads. And I hope that makes me better at taking my husband's perspective. Mm -hmm. And also I know from the research, it's important to take other people's perspectives. And so I try, you know, but it probably has its pluses and minuses. I certainly don't. I think honestly, it could be interfering, right? Like you can know <laughs> too much about something yeah, or, or think too much about it or, or knowing what, you know, the thing is, is that every couple engages in some of the negative behaviors that researchers are calling out and knowing what they are, you might take that as a sign that you have a bad relationship. I think one of the things I'm good at is knowing that just because we aren't always perfect doesn't mean that we're doomed or anything like this, right? So this is something that I see sometimes in my undergraduate students where they're like, wait, if I do this in my relationship, does that mean that my boyfriend and I should break up or my girlfriend and I should break up? And I'm like, no, like you have to look at the whole picture. Like doing this one thing doesn't mean that your relationship is doomed and you should just give it up now, but that you have to consider all the good things that it brings you and all the bad and, and, to, and to think about whether that meets your needs or not. Maybe the, the good thing it does is that I think both my husband and I are open to talking about things and, mm. and, you know, and having discussions about it and, and trying to do that when we're not 
heated or upset, you know, but have the discussions about stuff beforehand. It almost ties back to the emotional capital theory of, of like the amount of positive interactions that we also have and build up over time so that when we do have those fights, we're withdrawing from a full bank rather than an empty. Yes. Yes. That's um, Dr. Lisa Neff's work, who Mm -hmm. I know you spoke to earlier with our student, Courtney Walsh. They've published a couple of papers and I was on one of them in which we looked at emotional capital. And I do think that's really important. And I think that these sort of bigger family activities that I've been talking about are just sort of like bigger I, we don't, we don't want to use the word deposit because it just doesn't quite work that way. It's not like you take it out or in, but that everyday positive moments are the things that buffer you. And then when you have particularly great moments, they not only buffer you from the negative, but like remind you of all of the things that make you want to be with this person and in this family and in your life. And I I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish you knew sooner in your relationship or marriage? Like, what would you tell your younger self? I don't know. Um, that's a really interesting question. I think that I might just tell her like, hey, you still really love your husband after 22 years, you know, like or 14 years of him being your husband. Like, and it just be reassuring to know that like, hey, you're still making it work, right? <laughs> um, after we had our second child, you know, I mean, things, we were fine, but we were, it was our 10th anniversary and we were going to go, we went away for the weekend and we were in the airport, you know, with just us and and not with a toddler and a almost six-year-old or whatever. And uh, my husband was like, oh, I'm going to go like grab something to drink and a, and a magazine or something. And I was like, no, oh, okay, do it. <laughs> it was so different than being in an airport where like, Um, it's like anybody goes anywhere. It's like, well, are you taking one of the kids? When will you be back? Like, you know, like we need to get this done before the plane comes, like just taking them to the bathroom, you know, just the list of, and like being like, wait, no, wait, I'm in charge of them now. Or, you know, this kind of thing. And like, just the fact that like, when it was just the two of us, it was like, oh yeah, like, sure, go do your thing. And like to, to remember what it was like to be just the two of us. And I remember like, just, you know, even just a few hours into this trip, I was like, I knew I loved my husband and, and felt, I mean, I was, I was happy in our, our marriage and I am happy in our marriage, but I remember just being like, oh, I really like you. Like you're one of my favorite people to spend time with, but so much of your day-to-day life is like getting up in the middle of the night and like cleaning up the kitchen and getting people to bed and then going to work all day. You know, it's just the stuff to get through life that, that sometimes when you're in the thick of it, you can kind of forget how much you just really enjoy this person and how easy it is to be around them. And I remember just really feeling that strongly. So just sort of reminding my, like, so being able to go and tell my younger self, like, you're right. You really do like this person, (laughs) you know, like, and you're going to continue to really like them. Sometimes you guys are going to be really busy and you're not going to be able to do those things together, but then you get to do them again. And it turns out when you do, you still really like each other. And I can't say that I was terribly worried about it, but I just think that that was, would be very reassuring when you're having those moments where you just don't have time, you know, and things get a little bit more stressful and, and hard. And, and you're kind of like, oh, wait, what are we like as a couple? And that's why I say that, like, as much as I think these family activities are great and I think could be particularly beneficial for parents with young kids and stuff, I also think that those moments of connecting with your partner and just your partner and being able to remember what brought you together in the first place are also really important. I don't want in any way diminish that. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that 
it always has to be just by yourself. It can also be as a family. Like our family vacations are definitely these times that we really reconnect all of us together. And, and it's wonderful that, that feeling of, of, of just getting to have fun with each other and relax with each other. What are some things that you wish more couples knew, more people knew about love and relationships and social networks and integration from all the things that you've researched and learned about? I think the simplest thing would be to say that it's not easy for anyone. It's sort of what I would tell new parents too, right? Like when you're on the outside of somebody's relationship, you can look at it and be like, oh man, they're getting it so right. It's so easy for them. Like she's so much nicer or he's, look at how he compliments her or how she makes him laugh or any of these things, right? And and to think that they have it so easy and that there must be something wrong with you and your partner because you're not like that. And I feel like a lot of people are somewhat aware of this, but for them to really know that like, even without Instagram and Facebook and these places where we sort of put our best face forward, even just our interactions with people, like 99% of couples, 99.9% of couples have problems and issues, right? Like they struggle with things. They have times where they're not nice to each other. They just don't tend to have them in front of you perhaps, right? So to just recognize that just that you're the person who knows what is most wrong in your relationship And you can look out on other people's relationship and think, oh, that means my relationship is wrong, rather than recognizing that other people also have things that aren't perfect. You just don't get to see them. And they don't seem as imperfect to you because you're not living them, right? And the things that will bother you or will upset you won't be things that bother them or upset them, but they'll have their own unique things, right? So just to not over idealize other people's relationships or even think that there is an ideal relationship. And I will say that that's, it's hard advice to give because there are people, there are many, many people who expect too little from their relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So it really, it's a double-edged sword. Like with all of these things, I keep saying like, you don't want to go too far in either direction, Mm -hmm. but look, there are people who are in awful abusive relationships and I would like them to know that there are better relationships. They can be in relationships that aren't hurting them, Mm -hmm. right? But I also want people that most relationships are pretty good, right? And to not think, oh, everybody else is doing this so much better, right? Um, And the same thing with the transition to parenthood that, you know, it can look like everybody else has it under control and that the fact that you feel you know, a lot of days, like you can't even get to the shower or something like that. And that that's something that you're failing at. And no, actually, almost anybody who's had a newborn has had a day where their only goal was to shower and they didn't meet that goal, right? Mm. Because newborns are a lot yeah, of work. Like they're a lot. They require a lot of attention. And we often just see it, people when they're not letting on that they haven't showered in three days. Right. I think you hit on this earlier when you were talking about you and your husband is that you guys are always willing to talk about it and like no relationship is perfect or, and you're going to have highs and lows. But I think one of the most important things I've heard as a common thread is just the willingness to grow and acknowledge your pain points. Cause uh, I think there's like a statistic out there that says most couples wait six years before ever 
like they're encountering the same problem before ever like seeking outside help or the willingness to even talk about it and bring it up truly. And so I think that's like whenever it becomes really lethal is just ignoring the same problems over and over and over again. Yeah. Ignoring the problems or even if you are talking about them, but not coming to a a resolution that works, right? Like to have it continue to be an issue. And it's interesting, not a relationship researcher, but one of the people that I worked with in the past would talk about she and her husband have been married for a long time and they have some fights that they've never resolved. And she'd be like, oh yeah, that's fight number 233, like same fight. And then her and her husband for these things that And they've just decided they aren't that important. They're always going to disagree about it. It's always going to be sort of a source of tension, but like it's not worth the energy anymore. And so they just sort of move on from it, right? And I think that's really wise too. So there are just so many ways in which sometimes you can continually fight about something, but neither of you compromises or changes, right? And so you might seek outside help to get one of you to compromise or change. In other couples, there's something going on that people are just ignoring and then it will become a problem at some point in time. Um, And that's when they go and seek help. And then, you know, at times it's like there there may be conflicts or disagreements that you don't have to fix. But I agree that the most problematic is when you're pretending it's not happening Mm -hmm. as opposed to acknowledging that it's happening even if you haven't found a solution. And then deciding whether a solution has to be found and then mutually figuring out a way to get to that solution, right? So there there are sort of multiple steps in that, right? One is acknowledging there's a problem. One is figuring out a solution. And then if you can't figure out a solution, deciding whether you need to or whether you can just live with it, right? Mm. Those are really hard things to decide. And, And I think it's one of the interesting things that we sort of think the only successful relationship is a relationship that lasts until death do you part. And I don't know that that's the right way for us to think about relationships. You know, mm-hmm. does it mean your relationship's a failure if you enhance each other's lives and, and we're happy together for 10 years? I don't know, right? Like, yeah. I, I think that those are really complicated questions. I think the reason it becomes so hard to think of it that way is that even if you had 10 really great years, those last few years are often where you're breaking up or where things are failing kind of poison everything that came before. Yeah. So it's interesting to, to think about the idea that if, if we could end relationships more healthily, that we might, ha- we might start to not define every successful relationship as one that lasts forever. Not to say that I don't want my marriage to last forever because I do, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's entirely possible that two people who are compatible and happy at one point in time in their life might not be at another point in time in their life. Well, before we move on to the last two questions, I just want to take a moment and acknowledge you and say thank you for coming on our podcast and doing the work that you do and sharing so openly. Um, I know that a lot of people, especially early parents, will hear this and, and glean some wisdom and hope from it. I hope so. I'm not so sure about the wisdom part, but it gets, it gets easier. It gets easier. You get less tired. They sleep more eventually. It does tend to happen. And they are wonderful. So yeah. Is there anything you would want to say to the early parents? Hang in there and like, just don't judge yourself too hard. Nobody knows what they're doing. I mean, it's shocking that they send us home with babies from the hospital it's really, I'm like, what, wait, what? I'm in charge of keeping this completely helpless creature alive with no 
prior experience in this department. You know, I feel like sometimes like uh, I hear about people who are adopting pets and like they have home visits and, you know, um, training and they get checked in on and stuff. And yet we have babies and you go to the hospital in a lot of places, you go to the hospital, you deliver the baby. Within 48 hours, you're sent home. Nobody checks on you. <laughs> Nobody. The only thing they check is, have you correctly installed your car seat? And then you're off, right? <laughs> like, that's it. And nobody ever, like, stops by to be like, hey, is this, uh, does this person have any idea how to raise a child? Um, but, yeah, when you adopt a puppy, there are a lot of organizations who are like, we're going to check in, right? Like, we're going to check in and make sure you know what you're doing. Because, And I don't have any problem with that. I'm just saying, like, it's. There is a level at which that's, that's crazy. So if you don't feel like you know what you're doing, don't worry. Very few people do. Yeah. At least that's my experience. Yeah. I'm sure there are people who it came very naturally to, but I have met many people and most of them say, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are we supposed to do now? Um, so, and at the same time, like, as terrifying and like sort of funny and like crazy as it sometimes feels somehow you do know what to do most of the time. Like you, you know, my kids are 10 and five, like they're still, yeah. I apparently fed them adequately. Yes. <laughs> and we got fed adequately too. And we're here <laughs> yes, and alive exactly. adults and humans. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, on that level, it's like, well, of course, like we've been doing this ever since humans came along, right? Right. But we domesticated dogs a long time ago too, and they're still <laughs> checking in on us. Yes. Okay. Next question is, what is the best relationship advice you have ever received or could give or just held dearly to your heart? You just try to give people the benefit of a doubt, right? Like don't, don't assume negative motives and to the extent that you can, assume positive or don't assume at all. But particularly, like, if you're in relationships with people who you think love you, then assume that they don't mean bad, right? Like, most of the time, they mean well, um, even if they're really bad at showing. <laughs> yes. And last question is, what does love or love intently mean to you? I think with love intently, what I think is, it's sort of conveying this idea that, that, Again, we think, oh, love is just a natural thing and, and being in love isn't something that we have to work at or think about. And even I think some people think that if you have to work at love, it's not even real love. And I think that's really not true. Healthy relationships that are benefiting both people take effort and work. And so love takes effort and work. And sometimes it feels easy and sometimes it feels really hard. But just because it feels hard doesn't mean it's not love. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, it would really mean the world to me if you could subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. And lastly, if you haven't already, be sure to check out the Love Personality Quiz at loveintently.com. Until next time, with love and intention.